Welcome to Sisflix, the podcast where we won't judge you for talking through the movie. Sisflix are the movies you laugh at, yearn for, and overanalyze with your girls, significant others, and now us. We are your hosts, Paola and Naja, two sisters and designers who discuss chick flicks we hate to love, tropes we love to hate, and all of the aesthetic choices in between. Join us as we break down our favorite movies together. Welcome to Sisflix Podcast. As you heard in the intro, we are your hosts, Nadja and Paona, two sisters who love chick flicks, hyper-focusing on chick flicks, talking about chick flicks, having ADHD, and... (laughs) Doesn't help. Does not help at all. This is our first episode ever, and we're most excited about having the same discussions about movies and design choices and design elements that we have always had, but doing it with an audience, because maybe there are other people who think the same thoughts we do while we're watching our favorite movies. Anytime I finish watching a movie or reading a book or watching a show, I go into like a deep dive. And I want to know like all the things and I want to talk about it. But the only person I can talk about it with is you. And then you're busy sometimes. <laughs> so I <laughs> so I turn to like, all right, where how can I find interviews? How can I find who's talking about this? Like I need a I need more content. Yes, I need more content about this thing. And recently I've started turning to podcasts to be like okay okay well these people they're talking about this movie that i like and then i realized not all the movies i like have podcast episodes hello yeah so i'm like you know what let's fix that when paula and i initially talked about making this a podcast i thought yeah there definitely aren't enough so we should add another one um (laughs) no there's there's definitely a lot There's there's an ocean in market. There's there's an ocean and we are but a drop. Which is why I feel better about it because Oh, because fewer people will find it. (laughs) (laughs) So much low stakes. We love a low stakes game. As we said, we're two sisters. We really love watching like a lot of the same types of movies, reading the same types of books. We have many, many common interests as far as culture. Luckily, I don't know, we're really close. We like each other. We like to talk about this stuff. So we think we're pretty funny. Sometimes we say pretty silly stuff. And, and sometimes I think we have some pretty sharp observations, even though we are, we are not movie professionals. We are design professionals. So I am a fashion designer who works in corporate. So designing men's clothing for like the mass market. And Paola is an interior designer. I think that as somebody who's passionate about interior design, definitely it's something that always sticks out when I'm watching anything. When I'm watching movies, shows, how the settings are set up, is it accurate to the time? It's interesting to see like how different shows or movies portray that time period. How what styles they focus on obviously depending on the story they're telling. So, I think I bring a little bit of that perspective as well. I think the perspective that I bring to it is a fashion perspective, right? So I really like to keep an eye out for the costumes, whether things are anachronistic or contemporaneous, whether they're appropriate to the time period, how the costumers and the directors and the production designers, honestly, because they all have to work really closely together, like how they choose to 
use color and volume and lighting all of those things kind of combined are what make the aesthetics of a movie between the two of us those are things that we really love to like get into I'm sure that other content like this exists that maybe we just haven't found. I haven't reached the end of the internet, but because it's something that we like to talk about so much, we thought, well, why don't we do it? So all of that said, for the first episode that we wanted to release, the first episode we've tried several times to record, we wanted to get into like our favorite movie collectively and our favorite costume drama or period piece. This is Pride and Prejudice, the movie. Released in 2005. Because there's a mini series. This isn't the movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is a podcast. Pride and Prejudice, the movie. Released in 2005. Directed by Joe Wright. It is his debut feature film. Something that astonishes me. Because this movie's like a bit older. It's eligible to vote. We've done our fair share of deep dives on background. Some information about this movie. Trivia and things like that. Aside from the fact that this was Joe Wright's debut feature film. He was also about 30, either while making this film or when it came out. I'm about to turn 30, and that's something that just makes me want to crawl into a hole and die. <laughs> <laughs> it was written by Deborah Mogic and Emma Thompson, also an actress, also a writer, and it is based on the legendary source material by Jane Austen, the original Pride and Prejudice novel that was published in 1813. Some people would call it feminist. Some people wouldn't. I would call it feminist. I would call it a satire. Feminist for the time. Yes. No. Yeah. It's not feminist for fucking now. When you're watching these films or even reading the book, you have to put yourself in the time period to really be able to appreciate what's going on. Because it's really about women finding husbands and how to do that in the most... The most advantageous way. Right? It's very outdated. Like, we're in a world where it's anti having to hitch your carriage to some dude's horse. Oh, that's a really good way to put it. Again, the three people that are listening to this, don't come for us. We're we're two women married to men. You're talking to like two straight women that are living in 2023. We also have lives brought to you by feminism. Choices that we were able to make brought to you by feminism. So, oh, well, yeah. I think a big issue they deal with at this time is the lack of choice. There is one choice. It's that or, you know, you struggle because women couldn't really have jobs at the time. And if they did, they were frowned upon. And Women of a certain class couldn't have jobs at the time, right? You were always aspiring to wealth. You were always aspiring to security, to protection. Many digs at women from that time period persist to this day, right? And, and some of those themes are dug into in the book. Some of them are more emphasized in the movie. As we get there in the plot, we will talk about it and have some more discussion on some things that, f- that still feel very modern versus some things that feel very outdated. For the listener who likes to level set their expectations, we're going to give you a very, very brief synopsis up top. You know, we're meeting you where you're at in case you don't know the plot of this movie, in case you don't necessarily know what it's about. And then we're really going to dive in and go more detailed and walk you through the movie kind of from start to finish. We're going to paraphrase a lot. We're going to summarize a few things. We're going to emphasize some things that we really loved and thought were uh, significant. Throughout our discussion, we're going to stop a few times and like touch base and also try to contextualize this in the time and then contextualize it for what it means for like modern explorations of womanhood, of feminism, of choice, and the cultural significance of it too. Because aside from both of us being designers, we are both Latin American women, first generation Americans, and 
we love this type of content so much. Like we love Jane Austen novels and we love Bridgerton and costume drama. And it's got like nothing to do with anything we've ever experienced in our life. And I I think you definitely have to, the word isn't take yourself out of it, I guess. I think it's like, for me anyway, it feels like fantasy. Like this is not something realistic to me or my life or anyone in our family family anything like that i watch it more of like oh my god this is beautiful yeah full stop yeah okay so you think about now like chick flicks right like they all feel very surface yes it, it is all surface like it's really you're focusing on one aspect of life mm-hmm. usually romance it's talking about male or female or male or male or you're, you're talking about two people and that's the focus of your story like you're not diving into their lives right a lot of people at the time actually criticized Jane Austen because they felt that her work was very shallow. Meaning like for the time that she's writing in, there's no reference to the French Revolution. There's no reference to what's going on in the Americas mm-hmm. and the American Revolution. And this is all happening. It is all contemporaneous. Exactly. And there's no reference to any of that in her books, specifically this story. I feel like later books, right? Like one that's really special to me is Mansfield Park. Mm -hmm. And I think there you kind of see like a little bit more of what's going on. But in this story in particular, you don't leave the two towns they're talking about. Right. Again, like we're saying, like in a chick flick, it's a relief in a way. It doesn't feel heavy. It's light. But at the same time, are you ignoring what's actually happening in the world around you? But again, I I feel like that's why I like chick flicks. I get to ignore everything else and kind of just enjoy. I think that's part of it. Chick flicks, the greater chick flick, right? Like there's this sense of escapism that... There, thank you. That's the word. And obviously it's a very feminine coded escapism. We're not even going to get into the fucking sexism of chick flick and even that term right now, right? And I argue like modern chick flicks do the same thing and we complain about them being shallow. Like the same arguments have been leveled against feminine coded media for centuries it's all shallow it's all oh this is so stupid the thing that jane austen's work especially with pride and prejudice highlights is that okay all of these feminine coded stupid little activities they don't contribute to like the greater pursuit of man at that time or whatever but they do the tiny machinations of society drive all of these interactions between their families. I mean, marriages were like business deals, right? So like all of these marriages that establish like wealth, establish property ownership, those things are seen as teeny tiny dumb women stuff, but they're actually shaping the lives of people. It's almost like the contrast between local government and national government. Local government is literally like in your town is the garbage truck coming to collect your trash on the correct day at the correct time. National government, it's like, oh, we made a law about taxes, but you're not going to know about it for another year. And even then, it'll be 15 cents added to your paycheck. And you're like, nice. Like that. <laughs> so the feminine stuff is a lot more tangible. And I think Jane Austen writing about it and satirizing it, critiquing it at the same time demonstrates how like especially in that time period hey women don't have control over the big idea stuff they barely have control over the small stuff they have to control what they're able to and they have to have some agency in their lives and this is how they have that exactly the only fucking agency they have a little bit if they're fucking lucky is in their relationships how they build community with like other women and other families common chick flick critique but important so 
let's get into the plot a little bit. Let me let me give you my my really sweet, really short lobby to third floor elevator pitch. Back of the book, Pride and Prejudice. Starring Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden as respectively Elizabeth Bennett and Fitzwilliam Darcy, who plays her love interest. This book is 300 years old. I'm not spoiling that for you. 200? 200. 1813. Yep. I'm not spoiling a 200 year old book for you, buddy. In the OG, OG enemies to lovers trope. This is any, anything you watch today that has to do with two people who hate each other and eventually fall in love reflects directly back to this book also really quick i'm just gonna do a little a little scorecard up top so we know what to expect this is a straight love story no one's surprised by that it is 1813 england it has source material which is the novel by jane austen the story was written by a woman jane austen sold it under her own name instead of calling herself a man when she wrote it which i think is really really sick which is a big deal for the time for sure The movie was written by women, directed by a man, and the trope is enemies to lovers, baby, and it's the original one. Pride and Prejudice follows the story of Elizabeth Bennet, the second oldest of five sisters, too many sisters, as they navigate marriage, society, and first impressions in Regency-era England. Yeah, one sister is definitely enough for me. If I had any more, I wouldn't know what to do. (laughs) I have no idea. And now we're going to start the very detailed commentary. Baona, take it away. The movie opens up on this beautiful English countryside morning. This is where I definitely coined this movie to be like a Sunday morning kind of movie. It's like a quiet, there's beautiful music. It's just a calm, just serene watch. This is like what you want to watch when you're on sensory overload. The scores throughout the movie are done by Dario Marianelli. This was my background movie for a long time. This was your background movie for like a decade. I still put it on from time to time just to have it in the background again because the score is beautiful. So our heroine, Elizabeth Bennett, is walking through the field with a book. She is walking. She's reading. Clumsy queen, clumsy royalty right there. She's actually reading the first copy of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, which was not named Pride and Prejudice. It was named First Impressions. That was her pre-release title. This is geeked out information. (laughs) If you pause and zoom in to what she's reading. (laughs) No one else does that. (laughs) No one else does that. They actually, they switch her and Jane's names out. So that it looks like it's a separate story. Obviously, she is indeed reading her story. And so as you're watching this part, she closes the book and she has a smile on her face. So she's satisfied with the ending of that story, which is the story you're about to see take place. Mm -hmm. Very meta. Very meta. You see her walking at what now you realize is her backyard. Right. You, you start seeing the chickens. You start seeing the servants putting clothes on the clothesline, on the line of dry line of dry. (laughs) on the line of dry (laughs) this is a part where you're introduced to not only the characters individually you're introduced to the home which has a lot to do with one the plot and two their position in society at this time you know they're landowners Nigel help me with the word they're landed gentry so you know this is their place in society this is like upper middle class or high middle class Right? High middle. middle. (laughs) 
High middle class. High middle That's big, how is Game the of same of as upper middle. So the landed gentry or the gentry is a largely historical British social class of landowners who could live entirely from rental income. Meaning they rent out estates on their lands. So then we see Lizzie approaching what is their home. And in the story, this is Longbourn, right? This is the this is what they call their land, which in real life is actually called Groombridge Place. And it was built in the 17th century. You can actually visit these lands. It is actually a residence. So the home itself is not open for visitors, but you can visit the grounds, which I think is pretty cool. And I'm sure it's gorgeous. An interesting fact, one of the architects of this home of Groombridge Place, Christopher Wren, actually worked on rebuilding St. Paul's Cathedral. St. <laughs> Paul's Cathedral after the Great Fire in London. Fun and uh, a fact that nobody needs to know, but I'm going to put it out there anyway. I went to St. Paul's with my mom and we walked up all of the fucking stairs and it did trigger an asthma attack for her but it's very very beautiful if you're ever in london highly suggest you go super historical spot so the house is actually done in the jacobian style and you see this in the heavy woods throughout you see this in the thick banisters the thick wooded fireplace when you come into the into the home. Lizzie actually enters through the side of the house and you can see straight through the dining room. Here you see Mary playing her piano. If you're watching, paying attention, you see that there's portraits of the sisters above the piano where she's playing. And I love that. I don't know why that's one thing that anytime I see this sequence, I always see the portraits of the sisters. And I think Joe Wright kind of wants you to see a couple things here. He's trying to give you a bit of a backstory on who this family is. So you know they're part of the landed gentry. But this home, it feels like a humble home. Nothing feels flashy. I would say everything feels very lived in. That's the way that I would put it. Exactly. They're not full of new things. Yeah. The sisters run through the house laughing, giggling, playing. This isn't my home, but you almost feel nostalgic. You can feel the sense of home. Like, oh, this family loves each other. They care about each other. And you get the sense that they work for that. I would also point out that the lighting and the color palette here are really important. So beautiful, gorgeous. It's natural lighting. So they're really taking so much from just like the sun. And also when it's darker in the evenings and stuff, lots of like candlelight and like firelight. The rooms in this particular house, like those shots, they're really flooded with sunlight. And the color palette is very earthy. It's very earth toned. A lot of the clothes that they're wearing you know, the colors almost seem faded out of them. The interiors of their homes almost seem a little faded out or like washed out very much in use. Like people actively live there. You could tell that it has this oldness to it. For sure. You see Lizzie come back around to the front of the house. Now is when you start seeing the interactions. Here's where you see you see her parents through a window they're having a conversation Ah. as the viewer you're hearing what they're talking about i don't know that she can she knows something's going on there's some commotion and she finds all her sisters up against her father's office door this is showing you the sisterhood they're eavesdropping right so i chime 
you get the sense of kind of that fun, youthful, but also comfort level that there is in the home, which I think is important because at this time, you didn't really see that in families. And that was also a mark to their status in um, society as well. It's critiqued throughout the movie. Yes, that they're not serious, that they're unserious Mm -hmm. people. Absolutely. I also think a good chunk of that was like a directorial choice, right? He wants you to believe that this is like a proper family. They didn't meet five minutes before they started filming this. And I think they achieved that really well where maybe other movies don't necessarily meet that standard for like the intimacy, how you feel that the characters relate to each other. And a lot of what we've been saying about like character description and stuff we're kind of stating it up top because it persists throughout the entire movie, like the ways that they communicate with each other. They have such a great rapport with each other. And as a person with a sister and maybe other people with siblings can relate, you can go from teasing each other to like standing up for each other, to fighting again, to something else in like 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. All of those things will happen at the same time. I think a lot of movies tend to avoid this for many reasons, like accessibility reasons for people who have difficulty hearing, for auditory reasons in terms of the sound because it becomes muddled. But they do such a great job of talking over each other all the fucking time Mm -hmm. in like such a great way. I would say another movie that does this really well that we could talk about in the future is Little Women, directed by Greta Gerwig. Oh, yes. So good. They're all just... The dynamic between the sisters. Oh, ideal. Yeah. The talking over each other is one of those things that makes this so believable. And I think as much as the period and the society is so far past us that is one of those things that you're like oh but this was probably the same (laughs) like right this for sure this aspect of people has probably not changed all that much in 200 years after this beautiful shot through the house one of my favorite parts is you see that there's something going on with the family you see like there's some people there's chit chat there's running around before they cut to what's going on with the family they pan out And they give you a whole view of the house. This house is so beautifully symmetrical down to the two front doors. Um, And this was like a style back then. This was it was almost like an H house. Like if you can draw an H from a bird's eye view, that's what the house looked like. And you have the two front doors, which I never noticed until like the 20th time I saw the movie. I'm like, why does it have two front doors? One door leads out of the living room. The other door leads into the staircase. It's flanked by these two beautiful trees. And the score is still playing in the background. It's beautiful. Like perfect cottage home. Like I love it. And it looks like a fucking home. That's also part of what I love about it. It just looks like someone's fucking house. Well, and then you see Elizabeth sneak up on the girls who are eavesdropping at the door. And everybody's giggling. And they're, she's like, what's going on? Nobody really knows. What we end up learning from this conversation that they're overhearing between their parents is that there are new bachelors in town. What does that mean for our five sisters? It means that there are new men traveling through their town who are single And probably need to get married. So the opening line, and this is like a pretty iconic opening line of the novel. I'm going to paraphrase. I'm not going to get exactly right. It is a truth universally acknowledged that men in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. These are men with a good fortune. 
they're in their like late 20s I would say you know there's already all of this kind of lore that's following them through town about how they've settled there it's almost like an Airbnb vacation home situation they've rented a local estate for a few months so all of the girls are super excited their mother is hype she's tripping she's like oh my god we need to introduce the girls to these guys yes because obviously they're single and they have money that means they want to get married that's the opening line right obviously to just to provide like another piece of context with regard to the bennett's Mr. and Mrs. Bennett have had five daughters. So they've successfully had five children. This was something that I'm not going to say for the 1800s, but definitely prior to that. I mean, maternal mortality was terrible. Women had a lot of kids back then. Women had a lot of kids because you had to have spare ones. (laughs) You you had to have spare fucking children. So not all of them made it to adulthood. And you also had to try to have as much as possible because you were probably going to die by the time you were 17. You always needed to try for a boy. You always needed somebody who could inherit land. You needed somebody to, who could inherit land. As much as getting married was a financial business decision between families and for your future, getting married was like making an investment. Having children was making another investment because ideally you're having a boy. So that secures your line, quote unquote, whatever that meant to people back then. Having girls would be really nice after you had a boy because your girls were your bargaining chip for uniting you to other prominent families or for social climate. Gender-wise, in terms of children, that was the baseline, right? They've had five children. Amazing. None of them are boys. At this point in time, that means that none of them can inherit the estate on which they live. That means that their father is like getting up there in age. In the book, especially, they make reference to their father being quite a bit older than Mrs. Bennett and getting married and having children a little later in life than what was normal. So you can assume if his eldest daughters are in their early 20s that he's probably in his early 60s, maybe late 50s, early 60s. Not great. My man's old. If he's trying to prepare for his, I guess for his death, which is morbid. Yeah, ultimate demise. Yes, for his demise. And he doesn't have any sons and no one who can legally inherit this land. And no no significant amount of wealth that makes his daughters attractive prospects. Then it's really like a fucking chess game of who's going to get married to whom and how they can possess any level of security in their futures when their parents are gone. Again, going back to like our conversation on chick flicks, in the grand scheme of chick flick bullshit, is seen as low stakes. Like it's seen as drivel. In your life, in the local government version of your life, it's a huge deal. All of these weird intricacies of society and marriage and like how you portray yourself, what your first impressions are, all of that is so important for women in this time period who are trying to get married. Like that could really make or break your future, unfortunately. Like their mom is annoying as fuck the whole time, but her concerns about what will happen to my daughters when my husband is gone are completely valid. Every time that she is freaking out about her daughters needing to get married, it's like a very acceptable freak out. To her, it's a real problem. Yes. To her, it's like the top of mind every single day. And that gets exhausting, of course. And that's a lot of pressure on her daughters and like what they're going to do with their lives. So after they've overheard this, basically this entire conversation between Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, where we land is that Mr. Bennett has already gone to meet Mr. Bingley. The introduction was made between the two of them with, you know, another common acquaintance that lives in town. He has ascertained that Mr. Bingley will be out 
at this upcoming ball that same week or a few days later that the girls are really excited for. The girls are excited to see what he looks like. They're excited to see if he was nice or not, what his attitude is. It's kind of like open season. It's kind of like whichever one of you catches his eye and he decides that he wants to marry you, bah. Well, because I think one thing that the Bennett sisters or the Bennett family do differently is you're used to seeing like, oh, the oldest sister is out in society, meaning she's allowed to go out to balls and meet and be courted, be courted by other gentlemen. Typically, what you see a lot of in this time period is it's the older sister until she's either courted or gets married. And then it's the sister after her. And then, it's, you know, they take turns coming out into society. And depending on uh, how long the, the older sister's been out, maybe the younger sister can be out now and blah, 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 blah. But in this you see right away, you know, in the first 10 minutes of the movie, all the sisters, all five of them are out at the same time. And this is like not a thing you did back then, especially because the youngest sister is maybe like 15 years old, which is very young for that time to be out in society. It's expressed later on in the movie that it's intentional to do this for the sisters to be able to have a close, good relationship I guess the younger sisters eventually feel neglected if a mom is focusing solely on like one or two girls as they're out and about. Now that we have all this information, the girls are able to go into that ball a few days later, fully prepared to ensnare this man, whichever one of them gets to him first, baby. As we get into this scene, fun fact information, I think this was either one of or the last scene that they shot because it was one of the very few sets that they had to build from scratch. The vast majority of the sets in this movie are existing historical buildings mm -hmm. that they were able to rent and use as the private homes of the characters in the movie. According to the director's commentary, Joe Wright mentions that, you know, assembly halls in the way that they existed at this time don't really exist anymore. So if they wanted to get that same type of energy, it was something that they had to make themselves. Going back to like kind of color palette and stuff. So the same color palette that we saw established at the top of the movie with the Bennett home and the dresses that the girls are wearing, that color palette continues through this assembly hall. So this assembly ball, very tight, everybody's like really packed in there. And something that's typical of like a lot of these movies when they're showing dance scenes and things like that is that it's kind of happening in this like rectangular layout where the center of the hall is open for people to be dancing and they're dancing kind of like in a line. So the women are on one side, the men are on the other. They interact in the center and dance with each other. Outside of that like central dancing area is just people hanging out, just people waiting for their next dance, standing, chit-chatting, cheese me. And at the top of the hall, at the far end of where all of these dancers are, you have the band, Fiddlers Fiddling. Another thing, like, this movie does camera positioning, and I think they're called track shots, where they sit the guy with the camera on tracks like a, like a railroad, like a train, so that you have this kind of smooth, continuous, not this, like, handheld shaky cam. When you open the doors to the assembly hall, and then you come in, and you're, like, going through the dancers, essentially. The camera's pushing forward mm -hmm. and, and you get this really comprehensive view of like where you are. When you start to like interact again with the Bennett sisters and with like our main characters, there's almost this The Office style Jim looking into the camera. Oh, yes. Everyone's interacting with what's going on. You might be following a conversation between Lizzie and Jane, but you're seeing a sister in the background 
flirting with a guy. There's always a story going on. Yes. And I think that's what makes it rewatchable because you catch different things every time. The attention to detail that is paid to the extras and the background actors in this movie fucking superb this is like a masterclass in good background acting the extras not only are they outfitted properly not only are they coalescing around a a singular color palette which makes everything feel very cohesive but they're interacting in an authentic way where a lot of times you watch movies and the people in the background are like standing there just opening and closing their mouths staring off into the distance not really having a lot of like agency in how they're supposed to be like one of my favorite things to do is fucking zoom in on the backgrounds of movies and be you like, know what the fuck is that You know you've seen a movie 30 million times if you <laughs> are focusing on the background actors. Correct. If you're like, what is my guy doing back there? Like, is he even saying words? But this is one of those movies where even focusing on background actors you're not going to find like a lot to make fun of. Like you're not going to find the odd Poland spring bottle a la Game of Thrones in the background or whatever. This is the type of movie where the background actors are so engaged. They're so well placed and well used throughout. Going back to what you were saying when you, when they had to make the assembly hall and it feels tight in there. I think that's intentional to show you one, this is a public ball. This is open to everyone in this town. Everyone's having a blast. There's no formality. Everybody's just having a good time, jumping, hopping. You're at a country ball. Everyone is a little bit sweaty. They've Ooh, all yeah, been dancing. It looks hot in there. It was hot. And there wasn't no deodorant back then. I have even The thing I don't want to know about Pride and Prejudice is how these motherfuckers smelled. Anytime I see this scene opening, my automatic thought is, I have un grajo. <laughs> I think un grajo del día. And nobody knows it because they all smell the same. They're smelly. But that we don't know that. It's not scratch and sniff. We're watching this beautiful scene. <laughs> <laughs> so what we get from this scene Aside from seeing them dance, seeing them interact with the people around them, seeing them interact with each other, everyone's kind of buzzing with excitement. Elizabeth is able to hang out with her best friend who was introduced to us in this scene, a girl named Charlotte Lucas, who is from a neighboring estate. Her father is one of like the few noblemen that live in that area. He is Sir Lucas. His wife is Lady Lucas. They're some of the fancier people. He's very much the guy that like needs you to know he's met the queen. You know what I mean? Charlotte, Lizzie, and Jane are kind of having on and off conversations throughout this dance, right? Obviously, they're waiting for these newcomers to arrive. As the viewer, if you're not yet aware, you become aware in this moment that Jane is like considered to be the most beautiful girl around. Luckily, Jane's loveliness does not keep her and Lizzie from being very close as sisters. And in the book, I think they emphasize this a little bit more than in the movie. They're constantly kind of compared to each other. Where like, Jane is fair haired. Jane has blue eyes. Lizzie has dark hair. Lizzie has brown eyes. I think that plays into the opposites attract trope of the movie as well. Obviously, this story is a journey about meeting these male characters and falling in love. But I think you're also seeing the story of their sisterhood and how that relates to how they perceive the world outside. How they perceive each other and how that colors how they interact with the world. Exactly. They're going back and forth. Jane is definitely going to snag one of these men. Lizzie doesn't think very highly of men. Jane is trying to caution her, basically against forming too much of a judgment about men without necessarily being in a relationship prior to getting married. I think Jane comes into it with a little bit more of a positive attitude. Lizzie's like a little bit more pessimistic. Something else that they learn from Charlotte is that they're really, really wealthy. Back then, 
this was apparently fucking common knowledge that you could find in Regency era fucking Google or whatever. Also, because this is where Sir Lucas position kind of comes into play because Charlotte's got all the tea. And that mainly comes from Mr. Lucas having a closer connection with higher society than anyone else in their town or in their relationships. This whole time, we're all talking about Mr. Bingley. Mr. Bingley's the guy that arrives to town. He shows up to the ball with a friend. Oh, who's the friend? Who provides all of the exposition? Charlotte. Charlotte. That's my girl. So Charlotte clarifies and establishes A, their wealth, B, their positions in society. So Mr. Bingley is earning 5,000 pounds a year. (laughs) The last time we tried to record this, I said dollars. Dollars. (laughs) That's his kind of like prescribed living What does that mean? What what is that in today's money? We looked this up last time. Hold on a second. 5,000 pounds to dollars, 1813. Okay. So he's making in today money. In today money. Not today's money. Today money. He's making close to half a million pounds a year. Half a million pounds. A year. In 2023 pounds, he's making close to half a million pounds. You are chilling. You have staff on that income. Yeah. You definitely have a beach house. Absolutely. You have a beach house and you don't rent it. No, they're going to their Airbnb that they booked through for the rest of the year. Yes. Bingley's doing very well. Some of us might say. As we're like in the midst of this really fun ball record scratch everything fucking stops the aforementioned bingley and party have arrived it's like the popular kids came into the cafeteria everybody stops what they're doing to look it's so awkward the music turns off everybody is still they're just watching these people and they're announced when they enter you know mr bingley mr darcy and miss caroline bingley caroline bingley is mr bingley's sister Mr. Darcy of Pemberley and Derbyshire is his friend. They are traveling together for the summer. All three of them are unmarried, but this is only significant for our purposes with the men. What we learn about Bingley's friend, Mr. Darcy, is that Mr. Darcy is double rich. He's double as rich as Bingley. Pemberley is the name of his incredible estate. One up on Bingley. Charlotte makes a statement. He owns half of Derbyshire. Half of Derbyshire, half the land in the county. Yeah. And Elizabeth comes back with the miserable half because this guy. He looks like an asshole. He cannot wait to go home. You know what I mean? Like he's got a book. He's got a hot chocolate waiting. Like he doesn't want to be there. I think I think you're describing what you want to go do. <laughs> Me and Darcy are the same. We're both very rich. No, like he's got like a puzzle, like <laughs> a puzzle. He's got letters to write. Like Bingley. The way that that I've described Bingley before is like golden retriever energy. Bingley is just excited. He's excited to be alive. He's excited to be there. Caroline, his sister, is also an asshole. She's more in the Darcy vein. She comments on how she wishes that they were in London. Everybody's so gross. Darcy is like pretty silent the entire time. I feel like you can tell from his body language and maybe I'm biased because I've seen this movie so many times. He's so uncomfortable. One of the things that this movie does that I love is even as the viewer, you are intended to perceive that discomfort as arrogant. 100%. Like you definitely feel like he's looking down on everybody. Like we're supposed to interpret him doing a Caroline Bingley, but silently. So she's openly judgmental. We're supposed to interpret him as being like silently judgmental. So they are formally introduced by Mr. Lucas to the Bennett family, the three elder Bennett sisters, Jane, Elizabeth, Mary, Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, the youngest two Bennett sisters are dancing during this introduction. Bingley's super duper friendly. Darcy's unpleasant as hell. 
to be friendly, Elizabeth asked Darcy, like, hey, do you enjoy dancing? Do you like dancing? And he's like, no, full stop. No, don't fucking ask me. And she's like, damn, that's like super fucking rude. Fine. Strike one leaves the conversation. Everybody goes about their evenings. Bingley asked Jane to dance. This is a big deal. Everyone's really excited about it. And the comment I made earlier about this giving like Jim from the office is that we catch so many facial expressions that like communicate things between the sisters. Like Jane and Bingley are dancing. Elizabeth's face is like, oh, they're dancing. Mrs. Bennett catches them dancing. Her face is like, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Later on, you know, Bingley and Darcy are having a conversation. Bingley's pretty much like, you should really get out there. You should dance. You should try to talk to some of these girls. Darcy's like, this place fucking sucks and everything's terrible. And you're dancing with the only pretty girl. Everyone else here is a fucking troll. Elizabeth is overhearing this conversation. She and Charlotte are out of sight of these two men. She's like, damn, this guy kind of sucks. Bingley goes on to tell Darcy, hey, well, you know, Elizabeth Bennett, she's really pretty. Like Jane's sister, you should totally dance with her. And Darcy's like, yeah, she, she's fine. But like, not for me, maybe for someone like uglier, dumber and poorer. And Elizabeth overhears this and she's like, oh, fuck this guy. She already has this, strike one has happened, right? She has this perception, like Darcy's a fucking asshole. He can't even be bothered to dance. How are you supposed to get to know anybody? After hearing this comment he makes about her, where it's like, she, I, not for me though. She's like, strike two, fuck this guy because there is nothing wrong with me. He's just being a miserable bitch. Kind of fast forward. They end up kind of entering impromptu into another conversation with Mrs. Bennett, Jane, Bingley, Darcy, Elizabeth. They're like off the dance floor. And Mrs. Bennett is, (laughs) I said this the last time we tried to record. I was like, Mrs. Bennett is not a girl's girl. She's not because Uh, she's basically talking down other women to make Jane seem better, right? Which is not a thing Jane would do, which like speaks to Jane's character. She's basically saying like, Jane is so amazing and all of these men have fallen in love with her, but like she hasn't gotten married yet. Who knows? Well, no, she actually purposely, she puts down Charlotte. Cause I think in one, they've come off the dance floor Bingley's like, oh, Charlotte's like such an awesome dancer. It's implied that he has danced with Charlotte at some point in the night. And him and Lizzie are kind of like, yeah, I love Charlotte. She's cool. And the mom like squashes like, if only she wasn't. If only she didn't have the face of an ass. And mind you, Charlotte is like an (laughs) average looking person. So for the mom to just be like, yeah, if only she wasn't such a gross bitch. Yeah, but then Jane. But look, but look at, at Jane. Jane. Like, don't look at fucking Charlotte. Look at Jane. Isn't she so pretty? Charlotte's so fucking ugly. And that's an insane thing to say in any scenario. But I think it was especially insane to like say that at this time. So like, frankly, this is upsetting to Lizzie because Charlotte's her best friend. Like, that's a shitty thing to say. And this is embarrassing them all. The fact that their mother is acting like this is embarrassing as fuck and makes them look bad. Right. Right. Well, you're talking to people of higher society and like now you're talking down on people who are above your rank Mm -hmm. and are nice, are nice people. Right. Definitely puts a bit of a stain on their character. Things get a little bit awkward. After kind of taking down Charlotte, she brings up that other people have fallen in love with Jane. A few years ago, we really thought this one person would propose to her. He even wrote her beautiful poetry. It didn't end up going anywhere. What gets me is like, it's Jane. She's the beauty of the county. Wanting to say like, she's the most beautiful girl here. But it's her mom saying it. Yeah. 
literally which is like isn't my daughter so smart and it's like they're eight years old eating a crayon and you're like i don't know about that just to put her in a good light in front of bingley she's doing her job poorly lizzie you can tell as you're watching the scene she is in the background she is itching to stop this conversation she jumps in and she's like yup the poetry that's what killed it ha 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 isn't that such a funny joke everybody that poetry made someone fall out of love this is one of the first times that we see darcy actually like engage in conversation he's like well you know if not poetry what should people do when they want other people to be in love with them right like how should you get to know people Darcy's trying to he's trying to get a better picture of like who Lizzie is he's trying to figure her out wait you just criticized poetry what would you do like you said to encourage affection she's already privately annoyed with Darcy not that he knows she responds to this person who has made himself out to be incredibly averse to dancing if not poetry how do you suggest people should fall in love with each other and she's just dancing dancing even if your partner's eye even if you don't fucking like your partner leaving mr darcy like speechless now he's realizing she probably heard what i said and she thinks i'm a dick i fucked this one up obviously mic drop she does a little bow because it's the 1800s and she turns on her heel that's how you excuse yourself (laughs) i'm gonna just start bowing anytime i want to leave a conversation be like excuse me bow and just leave bows turns on her heel exits this conversation and this realm of existence she's smiling she knows she fucking killed it she made her point yeah We're going to cut to like a scene where they're at home. She and Jane, on top of being like incredibly close, they share a room. They share like a four poster bed. They're having girl talk about the night. Jane really likes Bingley. She's like, oh, he's so nice. Every man should be like him. He's the best. And Elizabeth is like, done. You got him. You're in love. You are going to get married. Everything's going to be great. He only danced with you. He's in love with you. Like, that's it. This is a done deal. Done. The plan is in action. Jane is like, well, I can't believe what Darcy said about you. That was really mean. Elizabeth's like, whatever. Fuck that guy. I'm never going to see him again. I'm going to die an old maid. The following morning, the family is recapping the evening. Jane gets a letter from Netherfield Hall, baby. And who is it from? Not Mr. Bingley. It's from Caroline Bingley. Caroline's basically like, hey, so I decided that you were the only girl in town pretty enough to hang out with me. Come to my house for dinner. My brother won't be here. He's busy doing boy stuff. And Mrs. Bennett is like, what? Wrong. What do you mean he's not going to be there? Oh, you'll be there when he gets back. Oh, I'll make sure of it. They have a carriage. They have one. Jane is like, hey, can I take the carriage? And her mom's like, you're going to go on horseback. Guess what, bitch? It's about to rain. Get ready to get fucking sick. And we all know how the rain makes you sick. They must have had the immune systems of like a little flea. Just, (laughs) Just a teeny tiny baby. So... Sends her on horseback, in spite of the fact that this is a ridiculous thing to do. Jane goes over to Netherfield. It's a really funny jump cut where they're at the table. And Mrs. Bennett's like, fuck the carriage. You're going on horseback. Jane and Elizabeth at the same time lean onto the table and go horseback. And the immediate next shot is the door opening at what you presume to be Netherfield. And Jane sneezing. Yep. The thing we said is going to happen, happens. Yes, like instant consequences of your own actions. 
what we presume to be the next morning, we are at Longbourn with all the Bennets, and they get a letter from Jane, who has now been forced to stay at Netherfield because she is sick. She's pretty much like, hey guys, I'm dying. But luckily, these people at Netherfield are so nice that they're not going to let me go home. They're just having me stay here. Lizzie's like, this is fucking ridiculous. Like, I can't believe you would put her in this position in pursuit of a husband. To the mom. And the mom is like, she's not going to die of a fucking cold. First of all, it is the 1800s. She very well could. But she'll be there to spend more time with Mr. Bingley. Everything is going like as it should. Lizzie's like, I'm going to go over there. I have to go see her. The last thing I will say about this particular scene is that Mr. Bennett has just one of the funniest lines. He says to her, if Jane dies from this cold, at least we know she was chasing that bag. <laughs> and Lizzie's just like, fucking God damn it. Like, fuck you guys. We see her walking. The fact that she decides to walk yes. after who knows how long it's been raining. Mud. I definitely question her judgment in this, but. But she is 20. She to walk. And when I was 20, <laughs> I would walk three miles in the mud for sure. I'm pretty sure I did it, honestly. So Lizzie walks to Netherfield to see Jane because she's pissed. She's got to let off some steam. She's got to go check on her sister, make sure she's okay. By the time she arrives at Netherfield, her shoes and her dress are quite muddy. Her hair is out of its updo, probably just because of the exertion. Because I think back then, like, a brisk jog would have put somebody in a coma. She is led to the drawing room. Mr. Bingley's not there. It is Mr. Darcy and Miss Bingley, Caroline Bingley. And she's announced by their butler. She walks in. There's like this awkward beat of silence. The first thing that Caroline Bingley says is like, God, did you walk here? You look fucking crazy. Lizzie's like, I did. I did walk here. Can I see my sister? (laughs) Mr. Darcy's like, she's upstairs. Like, yeah, you could go upstairs to see her. And the butler takes her up to Jane's room. I think this is the first time that you see Mr. Darcy kind of like unnerved. I'm not sure why that is really yet at this point. But she walks in and it's like the haste he makes to get up off a seat and like greet her properly or bow or whatever. Eager much? Not going to catch me slipping. Not going to catch me slipping. (laughs) (laughs) She's led up to Jane's room. Caroline Bingley takes this opportunity to be like, this bitch looks fucking crazy. Right, Darcy? you see her hem? And Mr. Darcy says, nothing i'm just gonna point out a difference between the movie and the book is that mr darcy in the book is pretty open about his favor for elizabeth and so in the book when caroline bingley is kind of like digging at elizabeth it makes a little bit more sense because the implication is that caroline has a crush on mr darcy not quite a crush as much as like a business proposition of marriage It's not made as explicit in this version that Caroline is kind of a little bit after Mr. Darcy, but you just get the sense that she's a mean girl. It's implied in how she tries to put him down whenever it comes to Lizzie. I think she kind of senses something and anytime she has the opportunity, she wants to talk shit to have him see her. Don't you think I'm better? Like, right. Like, and in the book, he's very much like, no, I just saw her eyes. I just saw how pretty she looks bitch and you're like ooh, this version of mr darcy in this movie is so much more reserved yeah he's like a lockbox yes especially at this point in the movie this is where you start seeing like the simmer a lingering look or like a little bit more eye contact like oh joe wright does a slow burn in this movie so well 
Elizabeth goes up to see Jane. She's like laid up in this bed with like her arms up. She's like, I feel like shit. Mr. Bingley comes in to check on Jane, sees that Lizzie's there. He greets her. Elizabeth's just like, you know, thank you so much. Like you guys are so like kind and generous for letting her stay here. And Bingley is like poorly hidden excitement at the fact that Jane is just stuck in his fucking house. In the next scene, like the next like cutaway, Lizzie's hair is done. You assume that she's probably been there overnight and it's the following day and she's wearing a different dress. She's sitting in the drawing room with Caroline Bingley, Mr. Bingley, Mr. Darcy. They're having this big conversation with the overarching idea is really about the accomplishments of women. What makes a woman worthy of A, people having a high opinion of her, what accomplishments are worthwhile, and what makes somebody more marriageable? Between Caroline Bingley, because obviously she has an agenda, and Mr. Darcy are kind of on the same page, we think women need to have all of these traits. They need to speak a ton of languages. They need to know how to play instruments. They need to be informed about current events and they need to read a lot. They need to sew and they need to embroider and draw. The list goes on. They're saying, oh, she needs to, Caroline said. And Caroline is a fucking pick me ass bitch. She is. Like she's out. She's one of those girls. <laughs> she's one of those girls in an alpha male podcast. Who's like, I love to make my man dinner when he comes home late from the club. Like she thinks it's like boosting her position with Mr. Darcy and it's not. So Elizabeth is just like, this is so fucking ridiculous. You're asking for yeah, so like much. You never even met this person. This person you're describing. This fake like, person, this hypothetical person. There's not a person who exists that can do all of these things that you're requiring of a woman. And be decent. Right. So that's a joke that Lizzie makes. She's like, how the fuck have you met anybody like this? And Darcy comes back at her like... Like pretty much saying like, you don't think women are capable. Like, don't you like women? Aren't you a fucking girl's girl, bitch? And Lizzie's like, I think that woman would be terrifying. It would just be this list of qualities. And that's all there is to her. I think this is a part of both the movie and the book where the satire becomes significantly sharper. All of these demands that they're making of women, they would never make of men. Men are worthy of marriage and worthy of existing by virtue of being men. Even more so if they're wealthy, even more so if they're noble, but they have this inherent worth and desirability because they are men. Women have to work to earn the approval of society. That's what's so stark in this scene. Funnily enough, it's still very relevant today. This argument that men, you go and you follow your careers. By way of you going and following your career, everything else kind of feeds from there. Go do your job because there is someone at home who will cook your meals. There's somebody at home who will keep a home for you. There's someone who will raise your kids. Like you're worthy already as a man because you went, did a job and came home. You know what? Topical reference. It's giving very Barbie monologue because that monologue America Ferrera has where she's like, you know, you can't be too thin. You can't be too fat. You can't be too this. You can't be too that. You always have to be grateful. You always have to be accommodating. You always have to be nice. It's that monologue kind of like simmering underneath. Like you're mm -hmm. not saying it out loud. But the response that Elizabeth has to this conversation between Darcy and Caroline Bingley is the fuck is wrong with y'all? How have you met anyone who fits this criteria? This is so unrealistic. So pretty much this is like strike three. Now she's annoyed with Darcy's unrealistic expectations of women. Caroline, not a girl's girl, grabs Lizzie and she's like, hey, let's walk around the room. Isn't it so nice after sitting in one position for a long time to move around and change your perspective? It's also a kind of like a look at me moment for Caroline. 
the the attention is getting away from me. Mm-hmm. Now you guys are getting into too much of a conversation and I don't like that. Gets Lizzie, they're taking this pointless, stupid walk around this fucking room. Obviously, Darcy doesn't get up and fucking move. He doesn't have to change his mind. He's a man. So <laughs> they're walking around the room and Caroline is trying to engage Mr. Darcy. Mr. Darcy's like on the writing desk. He mentions that he's writing letters to his sister. Caroline is like, oh, tell her I love her. Because again, she's trying to establish in front of Lizzie, I know his sister. I've been around his family my whole life. Darcy pretty much is like, yeah, I told her last time how much you love her. I'll tell her again next time. I'm almost done with my letter and I'm not writing it over for you. Now Caroline has to keep kind of picking at him. So she's like, you're writing so many letters. You're just, wow, you're so cool. You're so, you're so good at letters. You're so smart. You're so businessy. He's like, no, I'm fine. I'm not that smart and cool. I have to write business letters sometimes. It's not that big a deal. Caroline invites Mr. Darcy to walk. He's like actively writing a letter at this fucking desk. So I imagine this is pretty annoying. He's like, no, like I'm not going to join you because I don't want to. And also like there are two things that you could be wanting from this. I would mess it up for you. I love that he sniffs out her agenda. Immediately. He's never about her. He's like, look, you want me to watch you. Your motive is that you want me to notice you or, and obviously this is not it because Elizabeth and Caroline Bigley are not friends, or your motive is you guys need to talk in private. You want me to notice you? I'll notice you. I'm right here. And Caroline's like mock offended. What are we going to do about this speech? And Elizabeth's like, well, you know, we could tease him. And Caroline's like, no, you don't do that to Mr. Darcy. You don't make fun of him. And Elizabeth's like, really? Why not? And Mr. Darcy's gets super serious, like too serious for the moment. Like she's trying to, yeah, she's trying to play around, trying to tease a little bit. That's coming from like her relationship with her sisters and her interactions with people. They're light, they're fun. And he right away gets super heavy and it's like, no. Yeah, he gets super heavy and he's like, I just can't forgive people when they've done me wrong. And everybody's like, that's not what the fuck we were talking about. (laughs) You fucking weirdo. (laughs) Like, okay. Like, cool. You really needed to get that off your chest. Right. You needed to say that around me so I knew. And Elizabeth's like, I can't make fun of you for that. That's not a bad quality. And she says, this one part I will directly quote, I dearly love to laugh. Basically saying, like, I wish I could make fun of you because then we would have a good time. Then we would be laughing and making a joke of this. Caroline says, a family trait, I think. Yeah, making fun of how informal her family is. How informal they are. How... They're like openly emotional. They show, which at this time was just not something you did, right? Like British people even now have this reputation of being so buttoned up and so rigid and stiff upper lip or whatever. I can imagine that at this point in time, it was so much fucking worse. So them being open and fun is like uncool. Nobody likes that. Specifically Caroline from this position of being like a total snob is like, ew. So we're going to jump into the next part of the scene as they're in the drawing room. The butler comes in to announce, ooh, Miss Bennett, Miss Bennett, a Miss Bennett, and a Miss Bennett. It is the remaining Bennett sisters in the same home, reunited, and it feels so good. And they've all arrived to Netherfield to ostensibly visit and take home Jane and Lizzie. Because I guess Jane's convalescence is over. In Netherfield. 
you notice right away the stark difference between this home and the Bennett's home. You see it's bright. You got bright colors. You got gold gilded moldings. You have massive banister to a big staircase. Yes. And you have these fancy chairs and everything is, is placed just so. And you definitely see the richness here in comparison to the Bennett's home to Longbourn, right? And even though they're in the same town. Yeah, you also get the sense that it's not really lived in. Like the Bennett home is lived in. The Netherfield Mm -hmm. home, they're just renting it for a while. It's not a very personal place. It doesn't reflect who they are because it's not quite theirs. But it's also so grand. The colors are much lighter, whereas like the colors at the interior of the Bennett home are a lot darker. The furnishings are spread out, whereas the Bennett home is cluttered. The rooms are Mm -hmm. vast with high ceilings. You don't get the sense that any of the rooms in the Bennett home are especially big or the ceilings are especially high. And the butlers, the staff is much more formal. Whereas at the Bennett home, the staff that they have is like humble pie. They just look almost like family members kind of walking around in the background. You don't see many portraits on the wall expressing like they've just arrived here, essentially. The stark difference between just how comical it looks when the Bennett girls come in, like the country attire versus just the Regency fashion that everyone around them is wearing. But what we see the women wearing, the remaining Bennett's, including Mrs. Bennett, walk into the home. These bitches look like cupcakes, okay? (laughs) (laughs) They sit on this one couch in the drawing room whimpering with joy because the inside of Netherfield is so fine. As they sit down, all of them go, (laughs) like, it's so (laughs) silly. And they're all wearing these kind of like, we've described the color palette for this movie so far as like being like earthy, golden, warm, lots of browns, greens, etc. The remaining Bennett's walk into this scene and the way that they're sticking out, they are wearing these kind of cool toned greens and cool toned pinks. Even the types of fabrics that they're wearing, the style of dress compared to what Caroline Bingley's wearing, and she's considered to be like the more fashionable one. They've got these ridiculously big bonnets on with like ribbons and lace and like they look wild. They do not look like they fit into this room at all. No, they look completely out of place. Entro, entraron un campesino. That's like, that's the vibe you get. Yeah, like, very campesino vibes. And again, like, Miss Bennett already hasn't made a good showing of herself being fina or having much tact. So she's already just, like, talking a bunch of shit when they walk in. This house is so beautiful. The furniture's so nice. And everyone around her is, like, embarrassed for her. The younger Bennett sisters almost, like, cannot hold back. Like, they're just like, we would love if you had a ball and invite the regiment, invite the soldiers, you know, cause they're like 15 and 16 and just like so horny. They can't think they are making fools of themselves. Honestly, Mary is the only one who's not really landing because Mary looks like a goth bitch. Like she's missing eyeliner and doc Martens. Mary is wearing like dark Brown and black. She's almost in mourning compared to like what her sisters and her mom are wearing. She is like, balls are stupid. And everybody's like, Mary, shut the fuck up, you (laughs) idiot. This entire interaction is like really embarrassing. But it is cut a little bit shorter than it is, for example, in the book or in a previous adaptation. So like in the book, Mrs. Bennett has this back and forth with Mr. Darcy where they are positioned 
in a way that is a lot more hostile to each other. In the movie, this is like much more subtle. And I think that's just because of the characterization of Mr. Darcy as much more reserved. So they don't necessarily have this back and forth, but Mrs. Bennett feels the need almost to like prove something because these rich people are like almost looking down on them a little bit. And so she's like, the town is great and we do a lot of stuff and it's fun here. And Elizabeth is like basically her head in her hands, just like, oh my God, shut the fuck up. Everyone's embarrassed. The viewer's embarrassed. The next scene that we get to is the women exiting the home. Jane is fully dressed. She is recovered. Her fucking pneumonia, fever, cold or whatever is gone. She's not dead. They're all going back to their carriage. They're saying goodbye. All of the girls kind of walk ahead of Lizzie. She's the last one to get into the carriage. Jane and Mr. Bingley, you know, they're super sweet. They're like smiling as they say goodbye to each other. He's like, please come back if you're ever feeling sick. He's, He's a so goofy. Goober. He's like a little goofy, a little nerdy. And it's very endearing for his character. Even though he's like perceived to be hot and rich, he's never acting like a player. He's always acting like a doofus in a sweet way. Yeah. Like he's a sweet doofus. That's pretty consistent with the book too. In the adaptation, he's like a, a bit less composed. He's just a little like, oh, uh, yeah, if you ever feel sick. I mean, uh, not that I want you to be sick, but uh, if you ever, oh, uh, what to do? Like, it's very cute. Lizzie's the last one to walk out. Says goodbye to Caroline. Both of them are mutually like, fuck you, bitch. Like, I never have to do this again. Right. Like, never talk to me. Says goodbye to Mr. Bingley. She gives him a big smile. And when I say says goodbye, she's bowing. She's doing the little 19th century bow. She turns to Mr. Darcy and does the quickest bow, not a smile on her face. And as she is ascending up to her carriage, unexpectedly, Mr. Darcy has offered his hand to help her up onto the carriage. This is like... Yeah, she's like taken by surprise. Yes, she's very surprised because I don't think he's helped anyone else in her family up onto the carriage. Like a couple things with this scene. People who know this movie know that this scene is like a big fucking deal. It has been memed and gift into like oblivion. He helps her up onto the carriage. She looks back at him because she's surprised and weirded out. She's like, you touched me. Yeah, why'd you touch me, weirdo? Ungloved hands. Yes, we get this incredible shot of his hand as he's flexing it open and closed. Almost like shaking off the nerves. Again, this is on every single book talker's instagram feed so <laughs> everyone even if you haven't seen this movie you've probably seen like a meme or a gif of like him flexing open his hand or whatever this is not something that's like in the book rather if it is it's not as big of a deal this is something that is significant because everybody should be wearing gloves in a more formal environment especially where you're like interacting with strangers when you're out in public you're outside of your home men and women i'd say women probably wore their gloves more than men did i think they might be wearing like lace gloves but they're not wearing like the very formal or like prescriptive style a regency era woman would wear and elizabeth doesn't have gloves on at all probably because she was just inside of this home where she stayed for several days she also isn't wearing a bonnet as he's helping her onto the carriage he doesn't have gloves on either which is not super abnormal for men but a man and a woman touching hands without gloves was like not a thing it takes you off guard yeah, like you sense that they're both surprised that they have touched each other or that he has touched her hand or whatever. Or even that he reached out to help her. When she was just expecting him to like stand there with his hands behind his back. He turns, he walks back into the house. We see him kind of shake out his hand. The whole hand scene, helping her onto the carriage. The symbolism one of helping her up onto the carriage after they kind of been... At odds. At odds the whole time. This simmer, right, that we were talking about before, like he's definitely developed some type of connection 
with her. Yes. I think she just ignores it. She's just like, nope, doesn't want to think about that at all. I think this might be the first time she thinks about it. I think it's the first time where she's kind of like, oh. They arrive back at Longbourn after picking up Jane. As they're arriving, a letter comes for Mr. Bennett. The letter is from their cousin, Mr. Collins, explaining that he's coming to visit. Mr. Bennett says to his wife, prepare extra dinner because we're going to be expecting a visitor. Here's where you realize Mr. Collins is who inherits the estate if their father were to pass away. They either got to leave or stay there with permission from Mr. Collins and probably pay him rent. In the book, Mr. Collins' letter is very straightforward. He's like, hey, so I'm living on this estate. I'm a clergyman. I have a home. And if I marry one of your daughters and keep your estate in your family... It will be better for everyone. This is an arrangement that works for us all. My patroness, Lady Catherine de Bourgh, has determined that it's time for me to get married because it's like clock's ticking, baby. That is his mindset. He's basically following almost like this preset plan. And I feel like if you're looking at this through the lens of like Jane Austen's broader critique, it's almost like Mr. Collins is like another victim of the society. Pretend Lady Catherine de Bourgh, his patroness, is society. She's telling me to do this stuff, so I have to do it. Right. Done. So I'm here to pick a wife out of your five daughters. Their property is going to go to this man that they don't know. Then their livelihood would be at his mercy. If he's kind enough to let them stay and pay a rent or if he's just going to kick them out. So they're walking through town and they're buying ribbons for the upcoming ball that Mr. Bingley promised that he was going to have. They come across an officer, all handsome in his bright reds. He starts interacting with the girls. They kind of start like a flirtation specifically between him and Lizzie. Lizzie's the one that catches his eye, but all the sisters are kind of like flirtatious towards him. They decide that they're going to walk together from town back to Longbourn. During their walk, they come across Mr. Bingley and Mr. Darcy, who were actually on their way to their house to maybe have tea, which is what they did. And you automatically see right away when Darcy looks at Wickham, there's a disdain. And he literally just turns around and he leaves. Everybody catches that like, oh shit, what just happened? Lizzie and Wickham kind of stay behind, I think trying to get to know each other. Lizzie asks him like, hey, so what was the deal with that interaction between you and Darcy? Like you guys got some history. And he decides that he trusts Lizzie and he wants to share his life story and explain like, well, Mr. Darcy's been an asshole to me and my family. So the elder Mr. Wickham was the steward for the elder Mr. Darcy. That means that younger Mr. Wickham and younger Darcy that we know in the context of this plot grew up together on the estate at the same time. When Wickham's father died, It was before the elder Mr. Darcy died. And apparently he had such a good relationship with the elder Mr. Darcy that when he was dying on his deathbed, talking to the two of them, not just his actual son, but talking to this also like bonus son, he was like, I want to give you a living. I want to set you up for life, even though you're not actually my son, because I cared about your father so much and because I love you so much. 
And then he goes on to say that Darcy refused to grant his father's wishes and didn't give Mr. Wickham a, a living and left him as a poor soldier out in the world by himself. Out of jealousy. Because according to Wickham, Darcy's father loved Wickham more than he loved Darcy. That's Wickham's side of the story. Lizzie is listening to this and is appalled. She's like, oh my God, how can Darcy do such a thing? Like, so you just met this dude and he's giving you a story and you're believing what he's saying with no other reference. He's reaffirming your existing narrative of this guy being an asshole. And because of that, you believe him. Exactly. Exactly. And so she takes it as fact and runs with that. Now, the next scene is... Mr. Collins arrives to the Bennett's home and now they have to host him for dinner. Rough. This dinner is both the most boring (laughs) and hilarious dinner ever. During this dinner, you definitely get the impression that Mr. Collins is all high and mighty. For some reason, he feels like he's arrived to like a poor relations house. It's very uppity. Yes, he very much thinks he knows more, he's smarter, he's more well off. You find out through this dinner that he's like the most ridiculous person. (laughs) Also like unaware because everyone's making fun of him throughout this dinner. He doesn't know. Totally goes over his head. One of the things that Mr. Collins says he, he does it either to figure out their position or to emphasize their position. Mm-hmm. Me and Naja, we love this line. We think it's hilarious. Like nobody compliments a potato like Mr. Collins does. Where he's like, oh my God, these are excellently boiled potatoes. Like this, this food is great. Which one of you made this food? So the assumption that one of them is cooking the food is very insulting. Mrs. Bennett is completely insulted. Like, what do you mean? We're perfectly able to keep a cook. For her, it was like a dig. Like, what do you, you're assuming we're cooking our food? Like, what? Yuck. Who fucking does that? What the hell? And he makes it a point to say, oh, I'm glad the estate can afford such a living. So he's already like counting their pocket because he's going to inherit this estate. So he's kind of saying like, how are they doing? Are they managing well? Is it making money? Another thing that Mr. Collins says Or does. And I think he does it without realizing it, though. It's because he's so... He's uppity and he's also very unself-aware. Exactly. He is not self-aware. He does not realize that the shit that he's saying is landing wrong. Like, he's not reading the room. He offers to read to them as if they're not part of educated society. Like, oh, I wanted to read sermons to you guys. It's almost like, let me preach to you. Let me read to you. Let me educate you. Yes. And everybody in the room is like, who the fuck does this guy think he is? Oh, next scene, everybody's in the drawing room. And he approaches Mrs. Bennett to ask for her permission to court one of her daughters. His specific interest is... Jane. Everybody's interest is Jane. She's the oldest and the prettiest. The irony is that Jane is so accommodating and kind. If her mother approached her and was like, Mr. Collins wants to marry you and you should do it, she would probably say yes. Because she knew it would have been best for the family to keep the estate within the family and also that it would please her parents. Um, As you know, all oldest daughter's responsibility is to please our parents Ooh, and our siblings. You could talk about that. Ooh, let's talk about it. But Miss Bennett's real quick to be like, look, she's off the market. She's like, no, she's engaged. Don't even. But and this line gets to me. 
because again, it's the comparison between Jane and Elizabeth. Oh, but Lizzie second to her in both age and beauty. So she's saying she knows she's the second prettiest. She's a good compromise. And he's like, oh, yeah, which yeah, on yeah, its yeah, own, yeah. that's a, that's a great alternative. Is an insult. And to the viewer, Elizabeth is your heroine. Like you're fighting for her and you're like, what, bitch? Alternative. Like she's that girl. What do you mean alternative? He's like, okay, yeah, you're right. Great. So what we see next is the girls getting ready for the Netherfield ball that Mr. Bingley's hosting. So this is a private ball. You received an invitation. You RSVP'd. There's a dress code. Only a select amount of people are going to this party. Mm -hmm. As the girls are getting ready, they're putting flowers in their hair. Jane's doing Elizabeth's hair. They're kind of setting you up for the expectation for the evening. And that is Lizzie wants to get with Wickham. Mm -hmm. She's already anticipating getting to dance with him, getting to talk to him some more, getting to know him better. Also, she's really trying to find out the dirt on Mr. Darcy, which is funny because she's not interested in Mr. Darcy. She can't stand him, but she needs to know what's going on. She's like, hey, Jane, you need to find out from Bingley what's going on with Wickham and Darcy. There's something there and I need to know why. Elizabeth is expressing she can't wait to see Wickham. She can't wait to dance with him. Jane takes the opportunity to like, oh. He's going to be a more willing dancer than Mr. Darcy is because we all know Mr. Darcy already gave unpleasant AF doesn't dance if he can't help it. Jane's like, I can't believe he said that about Mr. Darcy. Like, I can't see Mr. Darcy in that light. And Lizzie's like, that's because you don't like to think bad of anybody. Let him disprove what Mr. Wickham's saying. Like, I believe Mr. Wickham. Mm -hmm. She's being informed by her prejudice of Mr. Darcy. So they go to the ball with this in mind. They need to find out what's going on. They need to know if what Wickham said is true. And Lizzie wants to spend more time with Mr. Wickham. And obviously Jane and Mr. Bingley. This is a chance for them to have more interaction on a more personal level in his home. So they arrive to the ball. It's beautiful. Bright. Everyone's in white attire. There's officers in their red coats. The men are in their black jackets it's breathtaking it's beautiful it's a beautiful setup again you see the heavy contrast between the first ball you saw at the beginning of the movie as we're talking about this scene i do want to mention one thing from the director's commentary so two things one i find it very funny anecdotally he mentions i kept trying to find a way of getting the toilets into this ball because in our research we found out that if you were a lady at a ball you would have spent the whole day eating or drinking diuretics to stop you going to the toilet by the time you go to the ball because when you got to the ball you just had to hold it in there wasn't any plumbing or sanitation but the men could just go into the bushes if they needed to pee oh my goodness I don't know about that. So when you walk into this ball, like you definitely get the sense that there's central air. There's air conditioning. (laughs) No one's hot. I'm dead. It's a comfortable environment. As you walk in, they give you your glass of champagne. I'm dead. First thing Lizzie's asking, she's looking around to the point where... She's looking around to the point where it's awkward. To the point where Bingley is like, yo, you good? And she's like, oh, no, no, I'm just enjoying, you know, the general splendor of it all. And she's really looking for Wickham. But he's nowhere to be found. 
she finds out later from Jane that Wickham didn't go to the ball because he didn't want to be there with a certain presence. She receives like this very like coded message and she's assuming it's because of Mr. Darcy. Now she's has more disdain for Mr. Darcy because she's like, oh, he didn't come here because of him. Like, oh, now she, she hates his guts at this point. Oh, she's so over Mr. Darcy. Turns around, gets off the dance turns floor, around. turns around. I'm so sorry. Turns around. Guess who's right behind her? Mr. Collins asks her for a dance and they didn't even know he danced. It's so awkward. Was like, He's so terrible. It was creepy. so awkward. He's like, you know, I'm light on my feet. And she's like, the fuck? I didn't even know you danced. Like, Aren't you supposed to be like a... Aren't, I don't want to dance Clergyman. A clergyman? <laughs> clergyman? <laughs> <laughs> she's just like, I don't want to fucking dance with you. You're weird. This is when Jane's trying to tell her all the info on Mr. Wickham and how he's not there. He chickened out because of Mr. Darcy. Which leads me to believe he's got something to hide. Mr. Darcy asks Elizabeth to dance. Elizabeth? Elizabeth. (laughs) And let me tell you, so something that caught me off guard when the first time I'm watching this movie is my girl was quick to say yes. No, I was going to say, I think after like watching Bridgerton and stuff, apparently if you aren't already engaged for the next dance, denying a dance is super rude. I guess. You mean like she didn't have anyone else on her dance card. Exactly. She didn't sell me the reluctance. I remember the first time watching this, to me, personal opinion, Mm -hmm. this is by far the best period piece dance sequence. The camera work. Is that how you say that? Yeah. Yeah. Bitch, you're asking the wrong fucking... You better go ask the guys on Eye of the Duck. I don't know. You be knowing stuff. <laughs> the camera work, the music during this sequence is beautiful. Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden do a phenomenal job of showing the tension and longing with no words. They start the dance. Elizabeth's trying to have conversation. This is really the only time you really get to like talk to your counterpart. This is why balls were such a thing. This is when you were able to get to know your partner or the person you're interested in on a deeper level. She's trying to have conversation. She's trying. So, you know, what do you think about the dance? He's not with the small talk. And he's like, do you need to talk while we're dancing? Like he makes it a point to be like, is this a requirement for you? Like, if you need me to talk, I'll talk if that's what you require me. And she's like, no, no, no. I'd rather be boring. Um, Obviously being sarcastic. You see like the shift in his face and he's like, oh, you want to talk, right? All right. You want to talk? Let's talk. You often walk to Meriton? She's like, yeah, I walk to Meriton. As a matter of fact, I've made a friend today, Mr. Wickham. Now they're like. Now we're getting to it. Yeah. Now they're like in a conversation fight. Oh, yeah. I met Mr. Wickham. He was delightful. Yeah, he's nice. He does make good friends, right? Isn't he so cool? Isn't he so fucking fun, Mr. Wickham? (laughs) And she's like, she's like, yeah, he is nice. I mean, weren't you guys friends at some point? He's like, Mr. Wickham's blessed with such happy manners. Right. Like he makes great friends. Like, oh, yeah, you know, he does make great first impressions, essentially. He makes friends so easily. Whether he can keep them is another thing. That's what Darcy says. This is like a tennis match. He passes her the ball and she's like, he was so unfortunate to lose your friendship. She calls back to the point he made earlier in the movie when they were at Netherfield when Jane was sick. 
essentially saying like he holds grudges. Once somebody does me wrong, like I can't forgive easily. She goes, yeah, it's irreversible effect of losing your friendship. And she's almost being sarcastic. She's like, he must have really fucked up because you're not friends anymore. Right. Like he stops and he's like, why are you asking these types of questions? Like, where are you getting at? Pretty frankly, she's like, I'm just trying to figure you out. Like, who are you? All he says to that is, I hope to offer you more clarity in the future. You're kind of like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? And it's biting the way he says it. Because he almost is like, oh, I'm so sorry that I've been confusing. I hope I help you out in the future. Hope you figure me out. But also at the same time, I almost feel like he wants to open a door to let her in. Maybe you will get to know me more. That's a threat. And then they just continue dancing. They stop talking at that moment. And this is like the most beautiful dance because they're both mad. But there's also confusion some longing and then there's like this beautiful music in the background the shot changes to where the dancing is continuous but all of the extras are gone so it's only the two of them in the same room doing the same dance continuing from the previous shot it's seamless yes it's very seamless and you get this idea that in both of their minds they have forgotten everybody else is there and there's like continuous eye contact Mm -hmm. uncomfortable eye contact God forbid you were neurodivergent back then. The eye contact is everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Then the dance is over. It cuts to everyone back in the room. Then she leaves abruptly. And here's where you're kind of like, oh, she's pissed. But he's kind of left with longing. He kind of stands there for a couple seconds longer than she does. And it's almost left in thought like, oh, shit. Mm -hmm. And then that's when she starts seeing her family. I would say one of my favorite sequences in this entire movie, it's something like a three or four minute track camera continuous shot through the entire ball. You are going through nooks and crannies and the camera is going like there are no cuts in that scene. So what the point of that scene is, I think is to give us a holistic view of what each of the Bennett's are independently doing as they're at this ball. What's Mary doing? She's playing a a song badly on the piano. People are making fun of her. Mr. Bennett is getting her to stop playing the song. What's Jane doing? She's walking with Mr. Bingley, who's like obviously in love with her. What are Lydia and Kitty doing? They're getting drunk and laughing a lot, walking around looking stupid. What's Elizabeth doing? She's hiding from Mr. Collins and she's talking to Charlotte. There's this beautiful scoring in the background. The shot is fucking incredible, genuinely. It was such a feat because there are so many extras who fucking know the assignment. They're bopping, they're hanging around. They've got stories of their own. You can literally pause in this scene and like zoom in on one of the extras and they're having a fight with somebody or somebody else is mad at their man. It feels so like tangible. Like it feels very real. Any scene where you have a lot of extras, I feel like they do it so well. God knows the direction that they got, but they do such a great job. You get to this place where Elizabeth is hiding from Mr. Collins. I think she's hiding from her family. I think she's hiding from her family. I think she doesn't want to see them and how they're acting. I think she's become slowly becoming more aware of the fact that their behavior is very embarrassing. I think with Mr. Collins, she doesn't want to dance with him again. She knows that he's after something and she just doesn't want to entertain it. Wickham is not there. Then Mr. Darcy. And it's kind of like, what the fuck does Mr. Darcy want? Like, what what's he about? Why is this happening? A really, really funny moment is that Mr. Collins sees Mr. Darcy and turns to Elizabeth and he's like, is that Mr. Darcy? Pemberley and Derbyshire? And she's like, 
yeah, that's Mr. Darcy. And he's like, I need to go say hi to him. I work for his aunt, my patroness, Catherine the Berg. And Elizabeth's like, don't fucking talk to him. You're so weird. And Mr. Collins is like, nope, I'm going to do it. In the book, Mr. Collins is described as being like huge. He's described as not only being tall, but being like broad and like heavy set. And the way that they cast him in this movie, they cast this actor named Tom Hollander. He's great. He does this role so fucking well. And he's like short. He's like a small man. I would say he's probably in like the five, 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 six range. So it makes him like kind of all the more insufferable that he's small for some reason. Like a little mosquito you want to flick off your arms. Exactly. And he like insists on going to say hi to Mr. Darcy, goes up to him. The man who plays Mr. Darcy, Matthew McFadden, we've referenced a bunch of times. Aside from being handsome, he's very tall. He's like 6'2 or 6'3. When Mr. Collins goes up to say hi to him, Mr. Darcy is like engaged in conversation with someone else, to everyone's surprise. And Mr. Collins just keeps clearing his throat and saying Mr. Darcy's name louder and louder. So he's like, Mr. Darcy, and doesn't hear him. Mr. Darcy, doesn't hear him. (coughs) Mr. Darcy! And then everyone in the vicinity is like, who the fuck is this guy? Like shouting this other man's name. Darcy turns around. He's got his hand on his hip. He turns around and he's so tall that Mr. Collins has to duck his elbow because he's got his hand on his hip. (laughs) That shit is so fucking funny. According to the director's commentary, he says this is a gag that Matthew and Tom made up together. And that's significant in the book because it shows Mr. Collins' insolence. He goes up to this man clearly above his rank without being introduced no prompt just goes and interrupts his conversation that he's having with other people above his rank just to be like oh i know your aunt i work for her (laughs) santa i know him (laughs) (laughs) you just see like coño the people he's like he fucking doesn't quit un idiota does not quit can't fucking be chill for a goddamn second of his life Mr. Collins doesn't quit, and neither do we. You have reached the end of part one of our two-part series on Pride and Prejudice, the 2005 movie directed by Joe Wright. Don't forget to stay tuned for part two. Visit us on Instagram. Send us an email on Gmail. And thank you so much for listening. Bye. If you like what you heard and want to hear more, please leave a review anywhere you get your podcasts. Come and find us on Instagram at sis.flix.podcast. Shoot us an email at sisflixpodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you think. If you have suggestions or movie requests for us to cover in the future. This podcast is very loosely written and mostly edited by your hosts, Naja and Paola. And thank you to Neon Beach for their song Alive and Everything used as our intro.